appearing of our Lord gets closer and closer. So as we look at Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, we recognize that he has long been understood by the church and by Bible students as the fulfillment of all three of these offices. And we read in Hebrews, um, and I'll read this. It looks like we're struggling with our, uh, our visuals today, so um, I had a lot of trouble. Oh, look at that. Something came up. I don't know how well it'll do. I've had, I've had a lot of trouble with that, Sawyer, so if it, do your best. And I think I'm on going to slide number three, so is where I, where I hope to go. Look at that. Awesome. But slide number three, Hebrews chapter one, one through three, is a, is a text that points out all three of these offices of Christ. Look at long ago and at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here we see prophet, priest, and king. The first couple lines, in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. He is the fulfillment of all of God's word. And then we saw last week that after making purification for his for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. This is the work of the intercessor, the work of the priest. And today we want to see that he is the heir of all things through whom also he created the world and that he upholds the universe by the word of his power and he sits enthroned in heaven above. He is king. And so the prophet spoke God's word to the people. The priest offered sacrifices, prayers, and praises to God on behalf of the people. And the king ruled over the people as God's representative. And so today I want to begin by looking at the function of the king. And we should note that a king functioned um, as a vice-regent. That was basically their job. They were a vice regent. They were God's agent. This is important to recognize and it is important to make sure that we understand that the king was not sovereign. The king was not God. He was appointed by God to rule God's people. His power was a derived power. It did not come from himself. His power came from heaven, his power came from God and it was his job as king to uphold God's law, to judge with righteousness, to defend the people, to even engage in offensive warfare when necessary. He is God's agent. He is not sovereign. He cannot make his own decisions. He, in fact, one of the unique things about uh, the laws regarding kings in the Old Testament was that the king was held to the same standard as everybody else. Somewhat unique in the ancient Near East. That what was forbidden of the people was forbidden of the king. And what was required of the people was required of the king. He did not sit 
up above everybody and say, you know, I'm different, I'm above the law, I'm above the rules. He was a vice-regent, subject to God's law, tasked with the responsibility of carrying out God's law. And so much responsibility and privilege was given to a king. Well, from very, very early on, the people of Israel had anticipated a king, an anointed king. It is a king who would transcend any earthly ruler. This this anticipation actually began long before there was ever a king. In fact, the very first place we see a hint of this is in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, where Joseph, I'm sorry, where Jacob is um, blessing his sons. And we see the blessing of Judah, and from him is going to come a king. He is an anointed king. And then we see Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Again, still no king in Israel, but Numbers points forward and points towards a king that will come. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, we see Hannah's song, where she, her, her magnificent, her, her, her praise to God for giving her a son also talks about kings who will come, a king who will come and who will rule. And so you should note that while the promise to Abram and Sarah was that kings will come from her, we read that text today, Kings will come from her. Kingship is God's idea. But there was a promise of an anointed king. Psalm chapter 2, perhaps maybe one of the, the great psalms that speaks for, of, a, of a coming king one who transcends earthly kings. And the psalmist writes, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart. Basically, why do the nations rage? They, they set themselves against God. God is restrictive. God is keeping us hemmed in. Let us burst the chains that God has restricted us with. The result or the response from heaven is the Lord in heaven laughs. This is a scoffing laughter. Really? You human kings seek to break my rule? The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my hill. You guys call yourselves kings? I set my king. I tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Here is the king, the son of God. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And here God is saying, the kings of the earth are nothing. I have a king whom I will set upon my throne, and he will rule over all. Certainly, when Saul was appointed king, there were three great kings in in Israel. Saul and David and Solomon. And Saul became king. Well, he was chosen by the people and he was an utter disaster. Certainly not the one whom would come and have, have an established eternal throne. But then comes David and David looked really good. He accomplished so much. He brought all 12 tribes together. It was a unified monarchy. Israel prospered well. But David was a flawed man, certainly not the king. But but God said, through you, David, on your throne will uh, will come one who will have an eternal throne. He will be your son. Well, then that turns everybody's attention to Solomon, the son of David. And Solomon, in all of his wisdom, was a fool. Each of these kings would succumb to their own weakness and fell short of the ideal to which they were called and to which the people expected. The people longed for the son of David, who would be the king of the Jews. And then God goes silent. People return from exile and heaven shuts up. And then one day, out of nowhere, to a young woman, not a powerful woman, not a princess, not a queen, the word of the Lord came. And this was the word of the Lord 400 years of silence, listen to what the Lord breaks his silence with. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Even before he is born, he is called a king. At his birth, we see in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, the Magi Gentiles travel from a great distance and they ask Herod, where is he who is born king of the Jews? But it wasn't just others who testified about Jesus being a king, Jesus himself affirmed that he is a king. In his preaching, his very first sermon that's recorded in the book of Mark, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why is the kingdom of heaven at hand? Because the king has come. 
We see this in his preaching. We see it in his actions. When we consider the triumphal entry, one of the things that Jesus did as he's entering in Jerusalem prior to um, the great feast days, he has his disciples go and get a donkey on which he will, a colt of a foal, and he will ride into Jerusalem. The people understood exactly what was going on. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't just saying, man, I'm tired of walking. Get me a horse or a chariot or something. He knew exactly what he was doing. In fact, Matthew tells us this was to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet Zechariah, that your king comes to you seated on a donkey. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He then goes into the temple and clears the temple out, and he begins to heal and do miracles. He's established himself as king. We see it in his preaching, we see it in his actions, and then we see it in his testimony. In John, we, uh, we learn that Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus said a surprising thing, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my people would be rising up. He is a king. And then finally, It doesn't end with the life of Christ because the apostles pick up the theme of kingship. And in 1 Timothy, we know that he is the only sovereign, king of kings, lord of lords. So we have established what an Old Testament king would do just very briefly. We have seen that Jesus, from even before he was born, was king. Gentile magi understood it. He understood it, and the apostles after him understood that he was king. So let me talk about something that I think is most significant. Although he is, has always been a king, he demonstrates his kingship significantly in his resurrection. He demonstrates significantly his kingship in his resurrection. See, when we talked about his priesthood last week, or, yeah, last week, we focused on his death. As a priest, he offered himself. In connection with his kingship, we give attention to his resurrection and ascension. In his, his resurrection is his great triumph over sin and death. He is king of sin, and he is king over death. The two great inescapable realities of mankind, none of us escape these two masters, these two cruel rulers. And Jesus rises out of the grave. I am Lord of death. Death is subservient to me. I rule over it. Death cannot hold him. Christ, the risen king, (coughs) has all authority and all power, and he even says so. Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here we see the extent of his authority. All authority 
the realm of his authority, heaven and earth. I think that's a way of saying everything. I am king of everything. I have authority over all. So his resurrection and his ascension testify to his kingship. And I said that was most significant. Let me give you another most significant. This comes to us from Luke chapter 24, verses 50 through 53. Not quite sure about that little subheading there, but don't pay attention to it. Pay attention to what I'm about to read because this is an amazing statement. Listen carefully. Luke chapter 24 verses 50 through 53. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Here's what's significant. Well, there's a lot significant. But let me point this out that I think is is tremendous and amazing and, and, and causes us to think, what's going on here? And that is, after Jesus leaves, the disciples part with great joy. Why does Jesus' departure from his disciples result in great joy from them? You remember, not it was only maybe 40 days earlier that Jesus said, I'm going away, and there was great despair on the disciples. Jesus had to comfort his disciples, saying, I'm going away, but I'll send to you another comforter, one just like me, and he will be with you forever. And now Jesus departs, and when he departs, there is great joy. What changed? What changed from pre-crucifixion despair at the departure of Jesus post-resurrection joy. It was their understanding of the ascension. It was their understanding of what happened. You see, the ascension, one of the great overlooked doctrines of the Bible. See, ascension isn't just Jesus going up into the sky. It's not just him going up into some spiritual realm. It's not just Jesus ascending into heaven. The ascension of Jesus Christ is his coronation as King of kings and Lord of lords. This is why they're joyful. Because now Jesus is not just some guy in heaven, but he is Lord of all. And he has taken his seat on his heavenly throne. And he rules now as King from heaven. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Listen to the word of the Lord. That Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. First Peter 
chapter 3, verse 22, echoes this reality. Speaking of through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subject to him. His ascension was his coronation. And his ascension, he is invested with authority as King of kings and Lord of lords. In other words, there is no piece of real estate, no symbol of power that is not under his rule. King of kings, Lord of lords. When we say he is king of kings, we are saying that he is king in the highest possible sense of kingship. And as Lord of lords, don't make, make no mistake here, that when the New Testament authors are using Lord of lords, it is not just a throwaway phrase, but rather it is reaching back into the Old Testament, into the Hebrew Scriptures, saying this was a designation of God himself, and Jesus takes that same designation. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, helps us understand this concept. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. We read, speaking of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. Psalm 136, verse 3 says, um, The Lord that give Just turn there. Psalm 136, verse 3. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. Jesus is King of kings, Lord of lords. He is the highest supreme power, rule, and authority Nothing compares to his ability to lead. This brings us then to some questions regarding the king and the kingdom, and I'm only going to very, very briefly touch on this. It's slightly outside of our purview, but I do at least need to bring it into the discussion but because of the vastness of this discussion, um, we can talk about it at another time and place. But the king's kingdom, the first question we'll ask is, when is the kingdom? When does the kingdom come? The kingdom has come already. In a sense, the kingdom has come. Why? Because the king has come. He has all authority and he is seated on his heavenly throne. The king has come. This was understood by the early Christians. This was understood by the early Christians who refused the Roman loyalty oath. What was the Roman loyalty oath? Caesar is Lord. Kaiser has curios. The early Christians responded with the earliest creed that we have in the Bible, Jesus is Lord. Jesus has kurios. This is an important distinction. 
Jesus is now. Right now, Lord. You say Caesar is Lord, we say Jesus is Lord. They were, this, this was a seditious statement. I want you to understand, an absolutely seditious statement. The early disciples who respect the state will not bow the knee to the state. They recognize that there is a higher authority, that all kings have a derived authority, and that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. Caesar may be his agent, his vice-regent, to uphold God's standards, but he is not my Lord. This was a huge problem. Remember, the early Christians were not persecuted because they were Christians. Rome didn't care if you were a Christian. Had no concern whether you were a Christian. As long as you bowed the knee to Caesar, as long as you took a pinch of incense and sacrificed it to Caesar and said, Caesar is Lord, we don't care what else you do. You can go to church on Sunday. You can go to church every day of the week and you can sing hymns to Jesus as a risen God, but you must recognize Kaiser Haas Kurios. No, Jesus Haas Kurios. Jesus is Lord. And it was for that because we recognize a higher authority. And let's face it, every tyrant fears a higher authority. When the kingdom, the kingdom has come, and Jesus is king. He is Lord. But we need to be certain we don't fall into the trap We have two pits that we can fall in, that the kingdom has come and then there's nothing else in the future or that the kingdom is only future. And so here we have the kingdom is already, it's already here, and in a sense we have the kingdom is not yet. See, there are numerous passages of text in Scripture that say, while Jesus is now king, He will come again and he will judge the living and the dead. There is a future element to his kingship. So the first thing is when is the kingdom? It is already, it is not yet. He is right now reigning as king, but there will come a day when he will return in glory and he will judge the nations and he will judge the Caesars and the prime ministers and the kings and the powers and the presidents and the courts and all of those will be judged by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Our next question, of course, then is where is this kingdom? And uh, without getting for our message today, I will just limit this point. to the fact that Jesus is rules over his church. In his first advent, he did not come to overthrow the kingdoms of the world, but came to rule in the hearts and the lives of his people. And as exalted king, he protects his church corporately and individually. 
He does not allow even the gates of hell to overcome. He is king of hell. Our king will not leave us to fend for ourselves against Satan's schemes, but he will rule and strengthen us, helping us to overcome, for he has overcome. So we have seen what kings would do in Israel. We have seen that Jesus is that king. We see that he has ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father and he is ruling from heaven over his people. So my final question is this. What difference does any of this make? To this I'd like to give a few basic applications as to, in regards to what difference does it make. The first difference it makes is that Jesus being King of kings and Lord of lords results in a change of one's allegiance. When you call upon the name of the Lord and are saved, your allegiance changes. If Christ is King, we owe all allegiance to him and him alone. We submit to his authority. His word guides our actions. His word guides our thoughts. His word guides our desires. As members of his kingdom, we align with his words, not my will, but thine be done. It's a change of allegiance. You cannot serve two masters. And so the question is, Will we submit to the rule of God? Will we submit to the rule of King Jesus? Because my allegiances are different now. That's the first difference it makes. It changes our allegiance. It also, the second difference it makes is that it changes our values. Earthly kingdoms value prestige and honor, achievement and advancement, strengths, winners, things that are having the right image. But the values of the kingdom are a reflection of the king. The kingdoms of the world honor prestige and honor, achievement, advancement, strength, winning, and image. And in the kingdom of God, our values values change. Service becomes the highest value and servant becomes the highest title that the king bestows upon anybody. I've said this often, it's worth reminding. Moses is called my servant. Greatest prophet who ever lived, my servant. Jesus said, be servants, and we all one day long to hear those wonderful words. Well done, good and faithful servant. The highest title our Lord bestows on anybody is not doctor. It is not ruler. It is not Supreme Court justice. It is not Hollywood mogul. It is servant. Let me outline the values. Of the kingdom. 
here they are. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Values are way different. With Jesus as king of kings, our allegiance change, our values change. The king calls his citizens to adopt these values everywhere, in our vocations, in our schools, with our friendships, wherever we go. These now are the values of the kingdom, and they need to be ours as we gather together um, in our jobs, as we gather together in our schools. These are the kingdom's values. But there's also a change of priority. And so I'll step on some toes because perhaps the greatest barometer of our values is displayed in how we spend our money and our time. Scripture says that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Let me qualify that the king does not forbid personal possessions or personal joy. In fact, the early, the early church held everything with an open hand. John says, if you see your brother in need and withhold from, from your needy brother, how can you say that you love God? Everything is held with an open hand. Change of priorities, how we spend our time, how we spend our, our resources. And then finally, there's a change of mission. The king calls us to consider our purpose and direction. We are not called to some aimless, purposeless existence. He has called us to a task. We have mission. We have purpose. In fact, whatever we do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. We live as subjects of the kingdom. We are ambassadors of the king. We represent the king and the kingdom. That's our mission. And we extend the message of the kingdom to the ends of the earth so that others have the opportunity to give their allegiance to the king of the universe. That's our mission. We may do it in our schools. We may do it in our jobs. We may do it amongst our families. We may do it as vocational missionaries or part-time missionaries. We do it wherever we go. As we go, we make disciples of all the nations. That is our mission. It's very simple to understand. How are we doing, though? And so as we remember what differences make, Jesus as king changes our allegiance. He changes our values. We have a change of priority, and we have a change of mission. So I'll conclude with this. The lordship of Jesus is not simply a hope that, of Christians that someday 
Jesus will return and the hope of his return is realized. The lordship of Jesus is a truth that has already taken place. It is the task of the church to bear witness to that invisible kingdom. John Calvin put it this way, it is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom of Christ visible. And though invisible, it is nevertheless real. Father, we come before you this day. We recognize um, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And we put our trust not in horses, not in courts, not even in science. We put our hope and our trust in the King of kings and Lord of lords who has risen from the dead and is seated and reigning forever in fulfillment of all the promises that you made to your people Israel. We give you praise and we give you thanks. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.